Tonight on Arena. In movies, we review Women Talking, Blue Jean and Magic Mike's Last Dance. And we celebrate the life and work of Bert Bacharach. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. The death has been announced today of the legendary American composer Bert Bacharach. He died at his home in Los Angeles yesterday at the age of nineteen eight of, of, of ninety four. I beg your pardon. In a career spanning many decades, he penned he penned hits for Dionne Warwick, Dusty Springfield, Tom Jones, and many more, winning countless awards, including two Oscars for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Best Original Song for. Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and of course Best Original Score Among his greatest hits I'll Say a Little Prayer for You as performed by Aretha Franklin Walk On By as performed by Dionne Warwick and this as performed by Dusty Springfield The look of love is in your eyes The look your heart The Look of Love, the Bart Bacharach hit for Dusty Springfield and the death of Bart Bacharach announced today, as I said, uh, died at his home in Los Angeles yesterday at the age of 94. Joining me uh, at the moment uh, right now to speak about uh, the music of Bart Bacharach is Bill Whelan. You listen to that song, Bill, and and you realise just what Bert Bacharach could do with what sounds like a very simple melody and a very simple song. How would you describe his music, Bill? Uh, well, um, he was extraordinary. He had an extraordinary ability to um, to write complex music, and you know, the more you look through his oeuvre and you look at things like. Um, you know, Alfie, as a, and the structure of of the song, you realise that Backrack was able to write hits, but at the same time was able to write complex music and and dress them up in such a way that they were accessible. It's that combination of musical challenge and accessibility that I think sets uh, Backrack apart. And uh, I grew up listening to a lot of Bacharach when, and I remember hearing that one that you just mm. played, uh, Dusty Springfield, which I think is the, that's the definitive version of that song, although I did hear Bacharach himself singing it. Um, and then I listened to all of the sort of Dion Warwick stuff. And it was, I mean, he was so influential to me as uh, personally, just mm. as a, to hear his ability to write and arrange and and to turn a song around and take it somewhere that you didn't expect. And, you know, he opened the door for all kinds of writers that came along afterwards, including Jimmy Webb and, uh, you know, Laura Nairo, all these people who who suddenly found that, you know, you could have yeah. hit songs and still have interesting music to play. Um, you know, he was not a three-chord trick man by any means. And he studied, as you know, Sean, probably under... Darius Milo and uh, Boslav mm. uh, Martinu. Uh, so his his classical background, background yeah. stood to him. Um, and and that's what he that, was. 
That's what extraordinary, what's extraordinary about it because I was saying, you know, the look of love, you listen to it and, and it's, it, it, they refer to it, it's always referred to as easy listening but as The Guardian, mm. I saw the, 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 uh, the, the, the article in The Guardian today um, referring to the Bacharach as the performer who turned easy listening into high art. That, that <laughs> for me kind of subs, sums it up, doesn't it? It, it certainly does and um you know, again, just referring to Alfie, I mean, Alfie has to be one of the songs that that really is, you know, it'd be in the top five, in my view, of what came out of post-rock and roll. You know, and I, I think his first hit was in 1952. That whole period, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, he was writing, he was writing in such a way that he was he was blazing a trail but it seemed to be a very easy trail. <laughs> but then try and play some of it, and you'll find out that it's not as easy at all as it appears. As it and it just slides down like a, some very, very pleasant drink. Yeah. Um, but it's it's actually really, really complex music, and particularly some of his orchestral stuff. I mean, he was a great arranger and quite a tough conductor, I understand. Yeah, because funny um, you, you mentioned Alfie there. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the Abbey Road documentary recently, If These Walls Could Sing. And one of the one of the sections of that documentary was Scylla Black singing Alfie. 31 takes. Yeah. 31 takes yeah. he demanded from her. Oh, and, and you met him. Did totally. you get a sense of that perfectionist or that demanding nature from him, Bill? When did you meet him and, and what was the situation? I met him. Uh, Riverdance was playing in the Pantages Theatre in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, it was, I, I was backstage after the show and we were just chatting to a, f- a few of the band. And, and one of the crew came up to me and said, there's a man at the door, at the stage door, wants to see you. And I said, well, who is he? And he said, well, he's, he's sort of slightly more senior gentleman uh, with this woman. And they're at the stage door and he just really wants to see you. And I said, okay, I better go down and see who this is. And I went down and there, you know, I can't tell you what it was like, Sean. You know, <laughs> it was like meeting, you know, for many people, it was like meeting Elvis. I met Bert Bacharach. Mm. There he was. He came over to me, he threw his arms around me and he said, I'm proud of you, man. He said that, that was really, I was really moved by that show. And um, and then I took him up and introduced him to all the band uh, and he was really gracious. I mean, I, he's such a sweet man. And yet in the studio, he was extremely demanding. Um, and uh, then subsequently I met him. I was working with Carl Bayer Sager on a project. He had been married to her. Carl Bayer Sager had a number of husbands, including Bert Backrack and Marvin Hamlish. And uh, their, their marriage had broken up, but he came into the house while I was working with her and he sat at the piano and we chatted and again, you know, the same thing, um, you know, a very, very easy kind of way of going on, but you could, you could feel the steel, uh, behind him when, when he talked about his music and, uh, he just wasn't, uh, he wasn't taking any sort of second, uh, options here. He was going for the tops and everything he did, he worked with the best musicians that were around at the time in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, we all admired him, you know, mm. and that's why as his life went on, people like Elvis Costello, you know, yeah. ap- appeared and worked with him. And, uh, you know, he was he was a, a musician's friend in many ways because musicians like to play music that's just challenging to yeah. them. And, and he gave them that. And at the same time, he gave the record industry <laughs> endless, hits, endless hits, you know, yeah. with the Carpenters and... 
But I remember the Dion Warwick album, the first Dion Warwick album I had, and it was just, yeah. it was just, you know, life changing for me. And I wanted to do that kind of. Yeah. I wanted to be part of that. That, that, that was really, you know, yeah. yeah. You mentioned Elvis Costello there, uh, and God give me strength. Uh, the, the 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 song in one of the songs in questions. This was a real revelation to me today as I was listening to it both in terms of Bart Bacharach, but Elvis Costello in particular, who I think you had said, Bill, you wouldn't necessarily put the words easy listening beside Elvis Costello. But listen no. to what happens when Elvis Costello and Bart Bacharach get together. There we have a, a little bit of God Give Me Strength there from Elvis Costello with Bart Bacharach from the album Painted from Memory. Bill Whelan with us this evening um, remembering Bart Bacharach and with me in studio here is Pat Carthy. I was saying, Pat, as we were we were listening to that song, is that an Elvis Costello that we have heard a lot of? I mean, it's an extraordinary meeting of musical minds, isn't it? It is. I mean, there's a that's about to come out. That's, sorry, that's from an album called Painted from Memory, which is about 1998, I think, and it's about to come out again as this box set of the songs of Bacharach and Costello, four CDs. It's absolutely magnificent. But Elvis does a big essay inside it, and he talks about his relationship with Burt Bacharach. And they actually... It all goes all the way back to 1963, the Royal Variety performance, and the Beatles are playing at it. And uh, Burt Bacharach is playing the piano for Marlena Dietrich, who was the musical director for the time. But also on the bill is the Joe Loss Orchestra. And the singer for the Joe Loss Orchestra was uh, your man McManus, Elvis Costello's father. All right. So yeah. that's, it goes all the way back to that. And he was bringing home the records, and, and Elvis got to know it. And he reckoned something like um, Accidents Would Happen, even though it doesn't sound much like a Bacharach song, would have been influenced by him. But uh, I'd recommend to anyone to get that painted from memory it, it's it's as good as anything that either gentleman did and that's saying a fair bit and as I say it's coming out again next month yeah. and it really is fantastic and just on the, on the on the type of musical arrangement that he has in there Bill Whelan I suppose one of the signature sounds is that um, it's it's quite often a flugelhorn that he has, which is a much softer sound than than the, the trumpet. So even when he gives you brass, he gives you this kind of easy mellow feel in what he does. That's right. It's it's uh, silky, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's um, and I actually just on that album, and I I, I think I'm right about this that. Um, the great young Irish um, engineer, Kevin Killen, who worked with, I worked with him on many sessions and he was a, a Windmill Lane, a young boy of Windmill Lane, came out mm. of Windmill Lane. As far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pat Carty um, is looking at the I'm CD holding it up. Cover. I'm holding it up here, Bill. It says on the back of it, Am recorded, I, yeah, engineered and mixed by uh, Kevin Ke- Killen. Yeah. And Kevin, Kevin was, uh, it, you know, again, I remember when Kevin was in the studio with Elvis and uh, and Bacharach, and uh, he just loved me. I mean, mm. just loved working with him, but only, be, but particularly because he was so easy to work with in one ways, but so demanding in other ways. Yeah. And this was the characteristic of him all the time. It's like the, it's like the gentle flugelhorn, but at the same time, you know, there are things that 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 Bacharach orchestrated which are tough to play. Yeah, well, um, and um, uh, I have a, I have a... it, it was. I have a clip here of, yep. of Bacharach himself, which I think is very interesting, Bill, because, again, I think you'll, you, you, we hear in this 
how rigorous he was in his songwriting process. He's talking here yeah. initially about how 24 Hours from Tulsa came about. And just the thought processes here, for, to my mind, are extraordinary. Let's have a listen. Basically, you have to have the song to start with. The song must be there or, the, or nothing will work. Then you have to have it encased in the right orchestration, the right vocal. So this song that I'm playing now is just starting, 24 Hours from Tulsa. That started with two trumpets. And they had a tension. You, you don't hear them on the piano necessarily, but they started like this. You recall that. And then the rhythm came in. That started the whole record off with that tension that I felt was indicative of the lyric that Hal David wrote. Now, something else happened in the middle of that record when the lyric said, uh, and we were dancing closely. Everything was doubled up. The time suddenly was twice as fast. The trumpets were double tonguing like We were going for a peak that would make the record rise up to finally come down. Now, we only had two and a half minutes to do it in. So we were looking for that complete rise, the maximum, and then come to the utter despair at the end. Do you remember the last lyric was, uh, I never can go home anymore. And, uh, and there was that guitar chord. Um, I hate to do this to you, but I found someone to me, and I can never, never, never. And that guitar chord that was so bad. Go home again. And the whole thing ended in complete desolation. That's Burt Bacharach explaining how to write a hit song. <laughs> Sounds easy. <laughs> it's really simple, Bill. Yeah, it gives uh, a pen there, I got out. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the rigour. It's the rigour that's in there, Bill Whelan, that, that really is it, striking, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you can't mention him without mentioning Hal, Hal David. David, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, D- David's lyrics were sometimes, you know, you kind of listen to them and you thought, God, if anybody else wrote a melody for this, it would completely tank. But somehow... They Bacharach's melodies with with David's uh, accessible lyrics and mm. be, and beautiful, very often beautiful lyrics were were such a marriage made in in, in yeah. commercial heaven, if you like. <laughs> and it will certainly as, as as you heard as you heard him describing how Hal David's uh, lyrics moved him on into new places in the song. It is quite extraordinary. Also with us uh, joining us on the line now is Leagues O'Toole. And Leagues, you tweeted earlier one of one great privilege of my career was to promote a Bart Bacharach show in Dublin in 20, in July 2019. He ha- had been in love with his work from a young age. Not only was the concert wonderful, Bart, age 91 at the time, was kind and generous. Chatted with fans for hours afterwards. Uh, just just give us a bit more of the memories of, of working with him at that time, if you would, Leagues. Yeah, I'd been trying to book him for quite a few years, was solidly on the case. And I, I, I actually had, I briefly met him uh, once before. I'd interviewed him on the phone prior to a visit to Dublin. It was, um, it was the National Concert Hall. I think it was, it was 1998, I think, uh, and topically, actually, Bertie Hearn was the teacher at the time because he was present at the show. And at one point in the performance, Bacharach says, um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Irish premier, Bertie O'Hearn, and, and the spotlight shone on Bertie up in the balcony with a, a big grin and a, and a ridiculous white suit with huge lapels. And afterwards, I was, I was ushered awkwardly into a, into a small room with Bertie and Elvis Costello, and Bacharach was there looking amazing with his, um, with his LA time and his, his post-concert tracksuit. But I finally got to bring him over myself in July 2019, and... Um, 
you know, I'm just just as a huge fan and, and also aware that despite his age, he still wanted to play. Mm. So he, he was 91, he came and his son accompanied him actually. And, and, and I did at one point ask his son, you know, wh- wh- why is he doing this? Like, why is he actually touring at this age? You know, you would assume the greatest uh, 20th century pop composer isn't exactly short of a few bob. Um, so he's not doing it for the money. And his, and his son said, no, no, he, he just wants to play as much as possible while he still can and, to, and still have that experience. Um, so, I mean, he was just, he was, yeah. he, anyone who was at the show will tell you he was wonderful. Mm. He, and he just, uh, usually humble, you know, on stage, um, his, his banter on stage is very, very humble. Off stage, incredibly down to earth, friendly, appreciative of the audience. And, and it was one of those, it was one of those gigs that was like a guest yeah. list nightmare. Everyone wanted to go, you know, probably going to be the last time you get to see him. And all day people are asking, you know, can, can we can we meet back around? Can we can we get a photo with him? And I thought, yes, this is highly unlikely. Like he's he's a ninety one year old icon. I assumed he'll be he'll be whisked in and out yeah. of the venue, and, and and that's it. And no one will really see him. But no, I mean, he he, he, he got off stage, yeah, um, and he chatted, and and he said, um, so uh, who, who's here? I'd, I'd like to meet everyone, and. Um, which completely took me by surprise. And he just went into the melee at the backstage and, and he said hello to everyone. He took photos. He did all of that. He was wandering around this, and I was wandering behind him with a chair, you know, this frail old man. I'm thinking he's going to collapse here at some point. Um, but that, yeah, he yeah. was just really, really Yeah, I'm just looking, I'm looking at, a, at, a, at a tweet that's come in here or a, a message that's come in on text. By the way, any memories or any songs you're thinking about when you hear Burt Bacharach, feel free to text us 51551 or at RT Arena on Twitter. Hi, Burt Bacharach at 92 released an, L- an LP, Blue Umbrella, during lockdown, collaboration of new songs with Daniel Tashian, who is closely connected with Casey Musgraves. Incredible and up there with the best of his work, texts Damien to us. But Pat Carter, you're nodding in agreement. With that, but you well, actually, you not, there was another one, yeah, 2005, I think, at this time with Rufus Wainwright and yeah. uh, Dr. Dre's on it. Yeah, and you were uh, at that 2019 I was, I was, uh, gig. That, I wasn't, that I wasn't was annoying leagues backstage now, I was out <laughs> working out the front, and uh, but it was great, uh, you know, there was so many. Uh, brilliant songs that what he was doing was he didn't have time for them all so he was doing mm. medleys of songs and then you know something come along and he might play something from the 80s and you think oh god this isn't great but don't worry there'll be another five or six brilliant absolute mm. classics and he sang if I remember rightly I think he sang Alfie himself in this kind of cracked voice saying it was his he maybe did his fa- is that right he did. maybe his favourite yeah. of, of all his songs and it was just um, well and, and deservedly yeah yeah and at the end I mean he, he got the crowd to sing Raindrops Keep Falling Your Head and I said at the end like that <laughs> That, that uh, the review that I wrote of it, you know, at the song's end, the master steps to the lip of the stage to absorb the applause that his contribution to human happiness had earned him. It's a debt we could never hope to repay. Wow, what, what a go. statement. And you, you were there as well, Bill, then, at that concert, were you? Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. And actually, his, I mean, um, it's him singing, um, like, it really, <laughs> I mean, any singing teacher would fire him out of the class immediately, but God, he was able to grab the emotion mm. of the song, and I found it really one of the most emotional performances. Oh, you know, I am mm. a big fan, and uh, declared, but um, it really, it, just to hear the man who wrote it sing it, mm. uh, as badly yeah. as it was, as a, as a as a vocal performance, but as Truly wonderful as it was, as an emotional performance, just fantastic. And indeed, Leagues, um, I, I think we, we'll, we'll probably go, we'll finish up with Say a Little Prayer, which has a, a particular significance in and around that concert and in and around your own fam, family life uh, at that yeah, time. My, yeah, my father had passed away um, the previous August um, 
and uh, I, I, I just I wanted to watch the show on my own side of the stage, so I just got a chair and I sat there on my own. And, and Dad had passed away the previous August, um, and Aretha Franklin had died two days before my dad. Um, so at his funeral, we played uh, I Say Little Prayer as his play-out song. And that whole year had just been a time of, of, of personal sort of trauma for me. And, and, and when Bert finally played um, I Say Little Prayer at Ivy Gardens, as you can imagine, the, mm. the floodgates opened. And it was, just, it was just a very healing experience. Yeah, and and just then to uh, as we wrap it up, Bill Whelan, what do you think his his legacy is then, Bert Backright? What what has he given us that perhaps will never be repeated? Well, you know, the songwriting and the art of songwriting has taken many turns uh, since he started writing. Um, certainly, I think what he did, as I said earlier, and I believe it's true, is that he opened it up. He sort of said, "Well, look, you know, he could have gone." He was in a sort of contemporary classical bag in terms of his his education, and he could have ended up writing kind of serial music, you know. Mm. But instead, he chose to go this way, and in in so doing, he really opened the door for a lot of really great great work to come on afterwards. And you know, there's a song from Promises, Promises, I think, isn't it? The world is a circle without a beginning, and nobody knows where the circle ends. Um, and that's really, I think what we can say about Bacharach. He's left us, but nobody knows how long mm. we're, we're going to be listening to Bacharach songs mm. in 100 years. Nobody yeah. knows where that circle will end. He's yeah. a great, great writer. And to be celebrated today rather than be mourned, you know. Well, if I, I find myself spending most of the afternoon just simply putting on, a, I think Pat Carty has it sitting in front of me, a, oh. double, a double CD of his that I had, and you just listen. It's, it's hit, out, hit after hit oh. after hit. But but let yeah. us finish with the one that, that, that you've all mentioned about um, the emotion, particularly in and around that uh, guard, that, event, that concert in the Ivy Gardens in 2019. We'll finish with, say, a little prayer. Leagues O'Toole, Bill Whelan, and Pat Carty, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us this evening on Bart Bacharach and Let Us Leave. Um, Aretha Franklin and Bart Bacharach to send us off. Thanks, Sean. voice of Aretha Franklin, the music of Bert Bacharach and I'll say a little prayer and uh, there we were remembering Bert Bacharach whose death was announced today. He died at his home in Los Angeles yesterday at the age of 94. And so to our movie reviews and a rich tapestry for your consideration this evening. Women Talking is the double Oscar-nominated feature film adapted and directed by Sarah Polly. tells the story of a group of women who must decide how to respond to the brutal sexual attacks they have endured at the hands of the men in their isolated religious community. In Blue Jean, we meet a PE teacher in 1980s Newcastle who has to reckon with her own attitude to her sexuality when a vulnerable pupil pushes the moment to its crisis. And in Magic Mike's Last Dance, Channing Tatum teams up with none other than Salma Hayek and director Steven Soderbergh returns to direct part three of the series uh, with me in studio. Uh, to review all of those films this evening, are well, Donald Clark is here with me and also joining us on the line is Tara. Tara. 
Cara, oh, I'm sorry, Cara, you've gone clean out of my mind. I do beg your pardon. Now, let us go. Let us go to Donald, first of all. Before we go to the movie reviews, in fact, Donald, you wanted to say something about uh, Bart Bacharach and his movie music, which we didn't get to touch there. Yeah, not, not much I can add to that tribute you just had, which was excellent. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, yes, he was one of the great songwriters and he came along at an era when songwriters were really useful to movies when they when you still got um opening credit sequences with great mm. songs by great composers um won three oscars two for um butch Cassidy and the sundance kid one best one of those two for a best song for raindrops keep falling on my head a song mm. which in your and my youth was unavoidable or our childhood <laughs> was unavoidable uh, and also for the soundtrack itself um and then later on with one 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 won an oscar for a song which doesn't immediately jump out as a baccarat type song which was uh, uh, the theme from Arthur, um, Moon in New York yeah. City with Christopher Cross. Um, but I think he probably deserved it, I think I would have said, for the theme to Casino Royale, which is one of those most, the greatest bops ever. Um, and it was actually nominated, in fact, for The Look of Love, which, technically speaking, was concluded yeah. in that film. But yes, I mean, untouchable, absolutely untouchable yeah. songwriter. And, and amazing that even within the, the film world, he had such an impact there as well. Anyway, let us move to our uh, movies. And as I said, Donald Clark with me here in studio and Carol Doherty joining us uh, as well this evening for our reviews. We're starting with Women Talking, Cara. Um, based on Miriam Taves' novel, which itself was based on a real story within a Mennonite community in Bolivia. But how is the story set up in this Sarah Polly version? So this is a fictionalised account of what, how Miriam Taus thought that these women may have made a decision about their future. In, in this case, the uh, the, the women, uh, they, they have no control over their own lives. They are completely uneducated um, and they're not stupid, but they've had no opportunities. And they're, they're brought together to make this decision to leave their community to stay in their community uh, or basically forgive the men who have horrifically raped them. And the problem in their religion is if they don't forgive, they're not going to get into their equivalent of heaven. So they have these massive decisions to make and they do this by electing some members of the women to come together to Mm. basically hash it out over a period of a day or so when the men are away. And I suppose, Don, one of the one of the challenges here for Sarah Polly was, as Cara has just described it there to us, these women, though not educated, certainly are not stupid. There's no question about that. The the level of debate that takes place here is quite complex. And as I said uh, to Sarah Polly when she was speaking to us on the program the other night, it it it's very nuanced and it's very complex. And therefore, they're sitting mm. and talking, which for a film sounds like a disaster. Well. There's an epigram, if that's, if that's the right word, that appears at the start of the film, which describes it as a work of female imagination, which I thought was an interesting phrase. Obviously, that's true in a banal sense. Mm. It, it's a work of imagination that's um, adapted from a novel by a woman and directed by a woman and, and almost entirely cast a woman, with the exception of uh, Ben Whishaw. Um, but it also points out that we're not to expect any sort of documentary realism here. That this, it is, he present, She presents it very much as a formal process. Issues are raised and the women thrash them through um, in a series of, I would say, almost discreet conversations about particular aspects of this issue. Um, and as it further kind of press home how embedded the action is in deep imagination, you, the cinematography has this washed out quality from Luc Montpellier, um, desaturated quality, which 
even presses further home the fact that we're not we're in a version of mm. the real world that's been reimagined um, by these female artists. Um, and I think that kind of that allows the degree of unreality or that justifies the degree of unreality which you have in these conversations which are obviously far more structured yeah. than they would be in real life but to my mind were extremely engaging not least because the characters were so economically drawn that you have these individual characters each of whom in a sense represents a point of view which can be very dry and can yeah. be a bit Brechtian if I get pompous about it. But in this case, I think they do just enough tweaking around yeah. the outside and the, with with the assistance of excellent actors, wow, they, they do are. feel like real personalities and not just expressions mouth of pieces. mouthpieces of, yeah. a, of, of approaches to yeah. this dilemma. Yeah, let's have a listen to get a flavour of the debate. Um, and in this clip, we'll hear Jesse Buckley, Claire Foy and Rooney Mara um, talk, talking around the debate of what's to be done. I want to stay and fight. But won't we lose the fight to the men and be forced to forgive them anyway? I want to stay and fight too. No one's surprised that you do. All you do is fight. Is this really how we are to decide the fates of all the women in this colony? Just another vote where we put an X next to our position? I thought we were here to do more than that. You mean talk more about forgiving the men and doing nothing? Everything else is insane. But none of you will listen to reason. Well, why are you here with us? Why are you still here with us if that is what you believe? Just leave with the rest of the do-nothing women. She is my daughter, and I want her here with us. Is forgiveness that's forced upon us true forgiveness? Keep nonsense like that to yourself, please. <laughs> that's Jesse Buckley, Clarify, and Rooney Mara uh, in that. And I think Judith Ivey might have been in there uh, as well, as, as that um, voice of absolute reason towards the end of that debate, that clip from Women Talking. Uh, Cara, practically, for me, at any rate, practically impossible to pick one person out of this uh, cast right across the board. They all have wonderful moments, and yet they all depend and listen and give and take from each other in a real way that is it's true ensemble playing. I mean, it really is. It's one of the best ensembles we've seen in a very long time. But even at that, Claire Foy just has that edge above everyone. Now, it's perhaps she is playing the kind of the most vocal character. Mm. Um, so we pay more attention to her. But she, her, oh God, her anger is so, um, it's, it's she's just barely hanging on. And she really is exceptional in, a, in, a, in an excellent cast. But she just has that edge over, over everyone else. And, and Rooney Mara, I think, as well, Donald, you, you singled her out. And it's a kind of a Rooney Mara, perhaps, that we... Uh, I don't know, have we seen that Rooney Mara before? Which is a great sign of an actor. <laughs> well, she, she, tends to be, she tends to be always a bit flattened in the parts she's been in up to this point. It's mm. not I'm a criticism of her, it's just the fact the role she's been playing has been a bit yeah. flattened up to this point, with the exception, possibly, of the uh, um, uh, of the girl, not the girl on the spider's web, the... Um, the, the, the you know what I mean? Um, it, um, uh, but... Yes, I think that's right. I think that there are three. But you're it's like you're watching um, uh, a rock band in action, and everybody is playing their yeah. instruments in absolute synch. Uh, they're all synchronized perfectly and are playing off one another. A string quartet's a better example, and all playing off one another absolutely beautifully. And I think I think Marlene Rudy Mara does stand out for me. I think because of that reason, we haven't seen her get the degree of modulation in her performance mm. you get here, where she is a person who perhaps goes through the greatest journey, I think, in the film. And she starts off as somebody who really believes that they can stay and they can alter the situation yeah. to make things more livable. And then she may or may not, depending on what happens in the end, comes to realise that's yeah. not possible. But I think it's also worth pointing out, we should, it hardly it needs to be said, that 
in the midst of these debates, they're also implicitly debating the wider challenges yeah, of global patriarchy. Yeah, it has a kind of an allegorical sense It's clearly about it. now, about yeah. the rest of the world, and about now as well. And it's, and that, it's interesting to have, to have it in this context, because a large part of what the conversation is about is about the nature of absolution. And that's not something we have conversations very often about yeah, when we're talking and there's, about. There's an amazing line in the midst of all of that where they say, don't confuse uh, forgiveness with acceptance. Absolutely. And also, just one quick line. I think it's a really interesting director, I think, Sarah Polly. There is humour in here. And there's, there, are, there are two or three wonderful points. There's one thing I won't spoil, one music cue, which comes out of nowhere, which is really yeah. delightful. And also, they managed to fit in the line, not all men at one point, which got not a guffaw in the screening. We were at, got a, a justified snort. I think there was a little bit of irony involved, certainly, yes. in the use of that line stars and overall from you Cara Oh, just, you know, this could have been a film that was absolutely, it is devastating, but it, it, this, it, and it could have been incredibly hard to watch. But there's that lovely mix of of the empowerment of women. There is some funny moments in there. And it just, it's mm. such a strong film. I'm four, nearly even towards a four and a half. There's one tiny thing that I just wasn't sure about in the final act, which I can't talk about because that would spoil. Boil it on us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, um, a four, just okay. over the four. And what are you saying, Donald? I get four and a half. It's four and a half. You see, heading a bit higher from, from Donald. Okay, that's... Uh, to, uh, women talking uh, doing very well from both Donald and Carol let's move on to Blue Jean we're back in Thatcher's Britain here with this movie homosexuality is viewed with deep suspicion Jean a closeted PE teacher is faced with a dilemma when she realises that a vulnerable pupil is struggling with her sexuality Carol the Jean that we meet initially very private in her work she has a girlfriend Viv who is, is very much out and very much proud of being out but in the context here is Section 28 lurking in the background. That's the problem for, well, not only Jean, but lots of other uh, gay women and men at that time. Jean is, she's quite remarkable that when she's in work, when she's teaching, she's so confident, she's assured, she's leading her students. But privately, she is absolutely terrified of being found out. She is in her relationship with Viv. She goes to gay clubs, but she she sneaks in and out the door um, and she keeps her, her life with Viv very, very private because she's just, she's terrified of losing her career, of losing her family. And of and, and the horrible thing is at that time, she teaches uh, female students, there's, there's there's that fear that she's mm. going to be seen as some kind of a pervert. So that she has all these things hanging over her and she quite understandably isn't, um, she's not brave enough to, yeah. to take a stand. And that's a major problem with both her girlfriends and when this vulnerable student appears in the mix. Well, let's listen to a clip um, with uh, Rosie McEwen here playing Jean and her girlfriend Viv played by Kerry Hayes. They're in a cafe and the news is on in the background uh, while Jean is talking about her day at school. In Haringey, positive images of homosexuality prompted a violent response from protesting parents. The new clause is a group of Conservative MPs' response. The central provisions are that homosexuality must not be promoted in state schools and it outlaws teaching the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. What does that even mean, pretended family relationships? I found myself lying the other day. <clears throat> I had to call one of the kids' parents and I've got... I don't know. I told her I was my boss. I didn't plan it or anything, but I felt like if I'd told her it was me, she might think... There's something going on between you two. Yeah. 
between me and the kid. Stupid? No, it's not stupid. You know that's what they want, though, don't you? And that's uh, Rosie McCune as Jean, the worried teacher, and Viv, played by Carrie Harris there in that scene from Blue Jean and Donald. Um, it, that news in the background, I, w- I didn't know what era I was in until the radio came on, and it is quite early on, the radio comes on and we're, it says Thatcher's Britain, you say, all oh, right, okay, that's where we are. And that's constantly how they, they achieve this 1980s yeah, feel. Yeah, I, I had a bit of a bit of a struggle with this at first. Um, it did seem a bit clunky and traditional. Um, I initially, funny enough, couldn't shake the notion that it played like something that could have been made in the 1980s. Uh, something in Channel 4 films around the time of My Beautiful Laundrette, only perhaps if it was made in 1984, you probably wouldn't have had included Blue Monday in the soundtrack as an obvious signifier of the era because you'd have known what era you were living through. And the crumpets, I think, comes through with that habit which you alluded to there of having the characters constantly stumble across radio and TV reports of the relevant wider story here which relates to Section 28. Moira Stewart is practically a character in the film. And Section but, 28 was basically this idea that oh you, you can't be promoting as they would have yes, put the, homosexuality the, 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 the disingenuous phrase was you, it was a, uh, you couldn't promote uh, homosexuality uh, in uh, in schools. And um, but the more but I have to say the more I thought about it the more I felt that, that was I think it's a result of the fact that it was a very, very effective summoning up of that yeah. rather grim era, and it was a very—I mean, it was an—it was a—it was, a, it was a, as we say, for the reason we just suggested, and also the fact, obviously, that you know, age was was looming as well. Um, it was a very difficult time for for gay people, and and that came at a time when gay popular culture was thriving and, op- and out in the open in a way that it hadn't been in the previous decade. Michael Clark and Derek Jarman's films, yeah. Pet Shop Boys in, in, in the charts, the same time as the government were trying to pull back those meagre gains. Um, so I think actually it summed up that, that very well and, and it actually caught that yeah, tension <laughs> between a degree of liberation that was following yes. on from the gains of the yeah, 70s and the you, pushback coming. Yeah. Once, I mean, you, once often, you kind of give into it, 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 it allowed It did. It, I, it think, I think itself. probably my, my reluctance initially was down to the fact, this, this feeling that I had, this just looks, looks like an 80s it's film. Yeah. It was probably a backhanded compliment I was playing to it in my own subconscious. Because yeah, I suppose in some ways it had to look, it should have looked like yes. something from the 1980s. But central to this really, Cara, are the, those two central performances, Rosie McEwen as Jean and Kerry Hayes, as her girlfriend Viv, a lot of the film is down to them and one other character who would come to, but the two of them carry a lot here. They really do. I mean, uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, Jean, uh, Rosie McCune's character, just that she, she is so divided. She doesn't know who she is. She's very lost. And Viv is so determined and and quite rightly is saying somebody needs to make a stand. Somebody has to be the first to, to be open in the, in the school situation. But you can really see that struggle. You can understand both of their sides. And the film doesn't, it, it doesn't judge. It very much lets you try to decide which side would you been on would you risk it uh, or would you stay hidden um i mean uh, god i can't even imagine what it must have actually been like at that time trying to make those decisions for yourself and in fact the the, the younger character the lucy halliday uh, lucy halliday the actor here who plays the character of lois the young pupil and um, that's very well placed in terms of how it fits into the story cara yeah, absolutely. I mean, she she is gay. Uh, it's everyone has guessed it by by the, the the rest of the students, and she's she is torn as well. She needs Jean 
to be out and be proud so that she can follow in her footsteps. But Jean is saying it's not safe. Stay hidden. Hide who you are. And that dynamic is it's hard to watch. But again, it's understandable. You know, this young woman needs needs support. She needs somebody to follow in their footsteps. And and Jean just can't make that Mm. decision. She might do later on. I'm not saying. But, you know, there is that dynamic there yeah. of if the people you look up to can't help you, where do you turn next? Yeah. And directed here by Georgia, Georgia Oakley. She's uh, due for some praise as well. Donald, as you give us your final remarks and stars. Um, I, yes, I, ultimately, I thought it was great. I think the, the, the pivoting, the pivot phrase in this is a conversation that uh, Jean has with Viv at one point, And one can feel oneself snorting along with Viv whenever Jean suggests not everything is political, because quite clearly, when you're living the life they're is. living, everything was political. It always is. But, yeah. but, but at that point, notably, um, four stars. I, it, I good solid four again. Um, what are you saying, Cara? Yeah, absolutely. Four stars, great performances. And I really enjoy the kind of cut, almost kitchen sink feel of it. Yeah. And it's very solid. Yeah, solid drama. Um, and Georgia Oakle is quite new, so I'm looking forward to see what she does yes, next as well. Yeah, for sure. She's she's um, she's laid down a marker with that. Uh, Blue Jean, the title of the film, and a double four star. Back with our third film shortly. And so to our third and final film on this Thursday evening, you may have finished Chippendales on Disney. Fear not, Channing Tatum is back with his shirt off and director Steven Soderbergh are here with the third instalment of the Magic Mike cycle, this one called Magic Mike's Last Dance. Cara, who will the last dance for Magic Mike be with? Oh, well, we don't know if he's going to get that dance, but if he's going to dance, it will be with uh, Salma Hayek, who is playing Max Mendoza, a very fiery former actor and wife of a media mogul going through a messy divorce who sets her sights on um, on lovely Mike and his <clears throat> tight white shirt. Um, and uh, yeah, she she might be his dance partner, maybe. Yeah, is, is it a touch of the, the Richard Gere Pretty Woman's uh, dilemma? Uh, dynamic is that what we have here oh very much i mean it's very different for the first two films but this is very much a reverse yeah reverse she she takes him to london she throws a lot of money his way she dresses him up in nice fancy clothes and she um, asks him to direct a show in a theater that she has acquired in the divorce so it's very much um, and she brings him to a fancy dinner where you know he is supposed to sit there with all of her fancy posh friends he doesn't quite fit in he has Mm. to struggle with trying to balance life with a butler i mean it's all very different for uh, mr magic I know getting used to butlers is such a difficult task in life. But um, Donald Clark, uh, Salma Hayek, Channing Tatum, does that give us a little bit of um, spark, perhaps a little bit of sexual energy to be expected on screen? Yeah, I think so. I think they're all right together. I mean, but it's a weird film. I mean, if you are going, expecting to see Channing Tatum rub his crotch in your face for two hours, you're going to be disappointed. Um, You get a good bit of that at the beginning. There's a really nice sequence at the beginning when he is at this stage a barman and she is this super hyper wealthy um, uh, wife or partner of a media magnet and she um, lures him into um, her living room and they mm. do a dance which which I mean it's it's, it's 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 absurd I mean he obviously is a professional he has been a professional and now working as a barman but I mean, she's as choreographed as he is I mean it's kind of erotic rolling around thing. but it's actually really good it's what the film is for and it's actually really well done and then basically 
it becomes an entirely different film for the next hour and a half. They go to London, they set up this show um, in the West End. It's really old school, we go to London stuff, like red buses and shots of Tower Bridge and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, you kind of think, well, okay, now we have this We have this great cineast in Steven Soderbergh who's got this uh, dance piece in which there's all these interruptions and sexual tensions. He's going to do a Red Shoes thing. But in fact, it's far more of a Cliff Richard musical than it is the Red Shoes. <laughs> Sense. Even down to the extent where they have this... I mean, to be fair, he's such a clever guy and he, everything is, is placed in inverted commas. I think this is deliberate. That it, he has this sequence which is really from, like, 1962 when the, the um, stroppy old biddy from the council calls round to shut them down for various reasons that are too complicated to explain. And they managed to win her over by doing a not particularly erotic but zany dance on one of London's famous double-decker buses. Are you familiar right, with them? Okay. Um, and she was won over and she becomes their great pal. It's total Cliff uh, Richard, total <laughs> let's do the show right here. So, and then at the end, you do get um, a, a good, big, erotic dance well, with Channing to... in the rain on stage but middle part I mean it's just yeah. bizarre and not unenjoyable I should say I think Soderbergh knows what he's doing but it, not unenjoyable yeah. but just something else because I, I, I was wondering about that Cara you know do we do we get when you hear a zany dance on a double decker bus it doesn't sound like what we got in, in the previous two uh, episodes of Magic Mike or outings yeah. of Magic Mike where we just got you know good straightforward dancing at a certain point with very little short in, in, to be found <laughs> Yeah, it, it's lost a lot of its cheekiness. And, you know, if you like that kind of thing, that's kind of what you expect to see from these films. Mm. Um, I mean, personally, I, I'm not going to object to watching very handsome, uh, muscly men doing their thing. But there is, a, there is a lack of it here. Now, there's some really great dance routines, but it's very strictly come dancing. It's very <laughs> safe. Yeah. Well, I was and astonished, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, Cara, the, 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 the film got a 16 cert here. And that's not just us going back to our old pure channel. We've got a 15 cert, which is the equivalent cert yeah. in the UK. And I'm completely bad. Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's nothing you couldn't but you couldn't screen at three o'clock in the afternoon on telly. It sounds like nothing was worrying you in that regard either, Cara. <laughs> well, that first sequence, the first the first dance, though, is I can see why the rating was a bit high for that. There's some crotch stuff, isn't there? Some crotch yeah, action. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And you kind of, you expect that it kind of sets a bar and then it just kind of sizzles um, down and kind of fades into this sort of sedate. Yeah, kind of, basically, kind of what you see on Strictly on a Saturday night is they're pulling their shirts off. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of it then. And just to stick with you, Karen, on the point that Donald made around uh, Steven Soderbergh, do you think, did you get that impression that Soderbergh knows exactly what he's at and there's a lot of inverted commas around many of these scenes and indeed possibly even the setup? I, do you know, I think that I think he may have set out to do that and then it slightly fell apart to the wayside. I just get the sense that they, I mean, even the other dancers, they're all nameless. There's no characters. And in the other films, we had like Joe Magnelio and Matt Boomer and there was a great camaraderie between Mike and his boys. All oh, that's faded away. It feels like they, I don't know if they did make it in the pandemic, it's referenced, but it feels like they had to sort of separate Mike and Salma Hayek or Channing from the rest of the cast so they right. didn't get COVID or something. They just feel feels like a disconnect there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Stars from you, Cara. I still can't help but enjoy it. I mean, it is it is entertaining and it, you know, it has its obvious attraction. So, three stars, but three. it's not going to it's not it's not going to uh, rock your world. Okay. And what do you say, Donald? Real oddball. I mean, t- time to call a close certainly, but I did have a good time. So, I give it three stars as right. well. So, quick pretty even across all three films then in terms of the accord of opinion between Donald Clark and Carol Doherty. 3 for blue for um Magic Mike and 4 and 4 and a half, I think in one case for both 
blue jean and women talking and that is our lot on our film reviews for this Thursday evening just before we go um, lots of reaction to the Burt Bacharach tribute earlier on listening for years to come says Rosemary Kieran in Delgany uh, referring to obviously Bill Whelan's comment on listening to Bart Bacharach for years to come went to an incredible gig in the Ivy Gardens it was so wonderful the crowd was enthralled we heard a lot about that and a poster of Bert is on the cover of Oasis definitely maybe leaning against the couch says Chris thank you for that piece of information Chris and I think there's general accord that that is true about the Oasis uh, album cover but that is our lot for Thursday evening Leah Murphy Paula Shields and Amandine Paso Divine researched Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator Mark Dwyer was on sound this evening tonight's programme produ- uh, produced by Olin Mc- Gone. John Creedon will be with you, I'm sure, with lots of Burt Bacharach hits after the news.